Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, the technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 16th, 2018, and this is show number 697. Well, I'm coming to you live, well, not live, recorded from my new recording studio over in Kyle's bedroom. I may have mentioned a couple hundred times, we are abolishing our bathrooms, all of them, and they have finished the downstairs bathroom and the upstairs kids' bathroom and our, uh, let's see, they've done our laundry room and our whole entryway, and now they're going to attack our master bedroom. So we've been banished from our master bedroom. It's all encased in plastic. looks kind of like a set of Dexter, and uh, so I had to move my studio out of our bedroom over into, um, into Kyle's room. So that's where we're coming from tonight. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was a really fun installment of programming by Stealth with Bart Bouchotts. We learned how to make web forms with Bootstrap. I know, that sounds really exciting, doesn't it? No, but seriously, with Bootstrap, you can make these beautiful and functional forms for people to fill out on the web using text boxes and drop downs and check boxes and radio buttons. And Bootstrap does all the prettifying of everything. The other cool thing is that Bootstrap makes you add the accessibility features along the way. It's not like one of these, oh, it'd be really nice to help the poor blind people. It's, hey, this is what we do now, so get with the program. I mean, it insists you can't get around it. You have to put the good stuff in. Anyway, Bart and I had a lot of fun, and I think you'll enjoy it too. Check it out in your podcatcher of choice, either under Chit Chat Across the Pond, number 563, or Programming by Stealth, 62 of X, whichever feed is your pleasure. And of course, you can always listen over at podfeet.com, where you can also find a link to Bart's written tutorial all about the episode. I took on the challenge of creating a tutorial for my favorite mind mapping app, iThoughts, from Toketaware for Mac, Windows, and iOS. Creating a screencast tutorial is the absolutely best way to learn to use a tool, and this one was no exception. I was really surprised because I've been using it for over five years and I had no idea of the depth of capability of iThoughts. I thought I knew everything, but it turns out there was so much more to it than I realized. If you're not a member of Screencast Online yet, you can watch the full tutorial with a free trial because it's a subscription service. You also get full access to the back catalog of videos during the trial period. Now, I got to warn you, I wouldn't do the trial period if I were you because you're going to want to become a member if you do that. You go watch a bunch of the older videos and you're going to just fall in love with it. Anyway, it's a great video if I do say so myself. I'm quite chuffed about it, if you will, because it's such a fabulous tool. And one of the most surprising things was that I did not find a single bug. It's an hour and one minute long video, and I didn't find any bugs. I thought I found one, and I wrote to the developer, who's very responsive, and uh, his name's Craig, and he said, nope, that's as designed. So uh, I highly recommend going out, checking the link in the show notes to the iThoughts Foundation video on Screencasts Online. As you're well aware, I'm a fan of the Affinity products from a company called Serif, They first came out with Affinity Photo as a challenger to Adobe's Photoshop. Later, they developed Affinity Designer as a challenge to Adobe Illustrator to compete in the vector design arena. They're at it again, this time with a beta for a product called Affinity Publisher, and that'll be a competitor to Adobe InDesign. Like their other products, Affinity Publisher Beta is available for both Mac and Windows at affinity.serif.com. Now, you know I'm no artist, and I'm only a passable photographer if you squint and round up. And yet, I've been able to do some pretty cool stuff with Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer. I'd never even used a vector design program before Affinity Designer. I've spent 50 bucks on each app and $20 each on their iPad versions. So I'm out $120 now, which is about one year of Photoshop plus Lightroom. I know that's not the same thing, but just to kind of frame it, this stuff is really inexpensive. Affinity Publisher, as I mentioned, is only out in beta, and I'm going to repeat that a lot of times here. But the fun thing about it being out in beta is it means you can play with it for free like I am. You can download it from affinity.serif.com, and of course there's a direct link to it in the show notes. Affinity Publisher Beta is a layout program that you would use to lay out magazines and brochures and online advertising type of things. You know those cool layouts they have on the Better Car websites where the text smoothly swoops around the shape of the car and it's got neato reflections and such? Well, Affinity Publisher is the kind of app you use to make those neato layouts. I'm going to put a disclaimer in here. On top of not being an artist, I have a second disclaimer. 
This is not a review of Affinity Publisher for two reasons. First of all, it's in beta, so that would not be fair at all. And number two, I've never used a layout program like this before in my life, so I am not qualified to do a review of of Affinity Publisher, even the beta, but not when it's released either. I'm just trying to give you enough information to maybe give the beta a try yourself if you think it sounds fun or useful to you. Now, I haven't exactly been planning my next car ad, but I do have a problem to be solved. Some of you know about this, but every year when we go on vacation, I write a daily travelogue to my family and friends. I like to think that it's entertaining, it is definitely silly, and people even ask me to get on distribution for this email. There are actually a 100 people on distribution right now, and every year I give them the option to get off. So far, two people have asked to get off. No, total three, three people. Anyway, these letters are a bit of text with a lot of photos that help tell the story. One year, Wally Cherwinski suggested I make each one into an iBook so I'd have them for posterity, posterity, sorry, not saved in a bunch of dumb emails. I've been trying to get around to doing this for years now. Well, back in March of this year, I told you about the trials and tribulations I encountered attempting to use iBook's author to create an iBook from my travelog emails. It was an utter failure. In the same story, I told you how it was even harder to use the recently announced book features in Apple's pages. Now, my goal is to have my story laid out with the photos placed artfully within the text, much like my blog post look. It did not seem that much to ask. When Affinity Affinity Publisher went into beta, just for grins and giggles, I decided I should see if it would allow me to create the book the way I wanted it. I have to say that after a few days of messing around with it with no knowledge at all about how layout programs are supposed to work, I've already got my travelogue looking better than in iBooks author or in pages. Now, fundamentally, Apple's applications are designed to do the layout for you, and you're not supposed to worry your pretty little head about its decisions. I found its layout decisions unpredictable at best and baffling at worst. Now, you can override the layouts iBooks author chooses, but I found that even more problematic. I got into a bigger mess when I tried to override it. Affinity Publisher operates in the exact opposite way. You have complete control at all times about how your document is laid out. It may be too much freedom, if anything. With great freedom becomes great responsibility, right? Let's talk about the Affinity Publisher interface. It's very comfortable if you're familiar at all with Affinity Photo or Affinity Designer. The right side is full of tabs like layers and colors and styles, which they call studios, while the left sidebar is a column of small icons for the different tools. Some of the tools are familiar, like there's a pen tool for drawing vectors and a pencil for drawing lines and some geometric objects. Across the top, you've got what Serif calls the context toolbar. In all of their apps, basically it means that the options up above change depending on what you're doing. If you have a text box selected, the context toolbar will show you the font and character and paragraph options available. But if you select an image, it will change to things like fill and stroke and corner radius options. In the middle is a giant area where you lay out your pages. I watched a couple of the Affinity Publisher beta video tutorials. Actually, by the time I was done writing this, I wrote, uh, I actually watched them all. And it was enough to get me started. And I learned that you start by deciding whether you want a single page layout or two facing pages. For the latter, think of like a two page magazine spread with images that flow across the staple area. I started experimenting with my Paris travelogue from earlier this year, and it felt really restrictive to work in a single 8.5 by 11 inch page, so I switched over to facing pages, and now I'm coloring way outside the lines, and it's fantastic fun. In my case, I have these snippets of text, not too much, or you know, people get bored. I really don't write very much, but I have lots of images. In Affinity Publisher, I learned to drop in a picture frame first before I plop in an image. Picture frames are cool. You paste your images into them. Uh, you have to right-click and say paste into or do a file search for them. It's a little bit clumsy. I'd like to be able to just command V right into them. Uh, but anyway, once you get your picture into a picture frame, as you drag the corners, the image is intelligently resized. The image isn't distorted as you change the picture frame's dimensions. Rather, it's cropped real-time as you stretch and shrink the frame. I tested picture frames with an image of a walk-don't-walk person sign that I thought was funny at the time. You see, the the French walk-don't-walk people are skinnier than the ones in the U.S. Though that was funny. I told you these letters are hilarious. Anyway, in my original email, it was this huge image taking up the full width of the letter, which was attention way beyond what it actually deserved. 
With the image as a picture frame and Affinity Publisher Beta, I could essentially live crop it to fit nicely on the page with other images. Now, my favorite thing about putting in the images is that the context toolbar gets a text wrap option that lets me force text to wrap around an image. You can change the margin around each image in the same text wrap interface. So let's say you just want to nudge the text away just a little bit more on the left side. You just tap the little up-down buttons to adjust it. The tutorial video showed the text floating around a cutout of a car, and it looked really neato, just like I said. Well, I'm still experimenting with how to do text. I've just pasted it in, and I've also used the frame text tool, which seems to be important, but I'm not exactly sure why just yet. I successfully created a style that I call Fig Caption. I couldn't figure out how to modify that style once I'd created it, so I went back to the tutorial videos, and then they showed me the trick. If you're wondering, Update Paragraph Style is a tiny little button under the list of text styles in the studio over on the right-hand side. It's easy peasy once you know how to do it, but if you're searching in the menus, you're never going to find it. You can draw with the vector tool on a layout, adding gradients and doing some other image type stuff with the tools in the left sidebar. In the beta at the top left, there are icons to activate the vector persona and a photo persona, but neither of those have been activated yet in the version of the beta that I'm using right now. Uh, It's version 1.70.58, if anybody's wondering. I'm sure they said it's going to be turned on later. Well, the bottom line is I'm having a complete blast playing with the Affinity Publisher beta, and that's a lot more than I could ever say about using iBooks Author. I said a lot of non-Girl Scout safe words when I try to make a book with iBooks Author, and not once have I sworn at Affinity Publisher beta. It does crash from time to time, and it does have unpredictable behaviors on occasion, but I have been able to recover from those crashes. It comes back and goes, oh, do you want your saved work? Okay, here it is. But the unpredictable behaviors are are interesting. For example, I was reading the help files and I was following the directions to find document setup. It said it was under file in the menu bar, but I looked under file in the menu bar and it simply wasn't there. Well, I checked into the, uh, they have a great community forum for Affinity Publisher Beta, and I wrote my question in there saying, hey, it's not there, and I showed a picture of the uh, help file and a picture of my file menu showing clearly the document setup was not in there, and somebody wrote back and said, yeah, it's a known issue. It turns out that uh, the app accidentally loads the Affinity photo menu from time to time, so all you do is quit and go back in and it sorts itself out. Did I mention this is a beta, right? Well, if you're even a little bit curious about how to use a page layout program and are willing to take a risk on a beta product, I highly recommend you go to the link in the show notes and download a copy of the beta for Affinity Publisher. Have I mentioned to you yet that it's a beta? People think of California as a really hot place and are always surprised when they come here and realize that the coastal areas really aren't that hot. The weather people here have a standard line they replay almost every day. Early morning low clouds, followed by hazy afternoon sunshine. You know, we pretty much stay at around 72 degrees Fahrenheit for months on end. At night, it does get chilly, dipping into the mid-60s. And I know that sounds funny, but people who come from normal climates are always surprised that it doesn't stay warm at night here, even in the summer. Now, while the inland areas do get pretty hot, being near the beach, we have a lovely ocean breeze that keeps us at those moderate temperatures. As a result, homes in our neighborhood simply don't have air conditioning. But over the last few few years, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's getting hotter and hotter. We kept thinking, oh, this is unusual. It's not going to get this hot again next year. But now it's been quite a few years in a row that we've had really hot summers, even by the beach. Now, our bedroom and bathroom is the full width of the house. And the west-east breeze, which is lovely around here, has to squeeze through a tiny bathroom window in order to flow through to the bedroom. In other words, there is no breeze at all. So now when it's getting into the mid-90s in the summer here, recording in my bedroom is like recording in a sauna. Finally, two years ago, Steve bought a standing Danby air conditioner from Home Depot for just our bedroom. It's glorious for those 90-plus degree days. You know, sometimes it's just in the low 80s, and I feel like a wimp and I'm wasting energy to turn on the air conditioner. At the same time, anything above 77 degrees, and I will have sweat pouring down the sides of my head from wearing those over-the-ear headphones. I wanted to be cool, but I didn't want to turn on the air conditioner. I'm sure you have a wild guess at my solution, but I'm going to teach you some stuff I learned in engineering school first. Let's talk about the three methods of heat transfer. In order of decreasing effectiveness, the three methods of heat transfer are conduction, convection, and radiation. 
I'd like to explain these three methods of heat transfer with an example to which all of us can relate. First, take a super hot bath or maybe spend some time in a jacuzzi above 95 degrees. When you get out of the hot water, assuming there's no wind, you will experience what's called radiation cooling. The air around your body is cooler than your body, and in a, so in a slow and very inefficient process, the two will begin to equalize, with the heat leaving your body towards the colder area. air. Notice how, after a hot jacuzzi or bath, it takes a very long time to cool down. That's because radiation cooling is the least efficient method of heat transfer. Now, let's say there's a stiff breeze when you get out of that jacuzzi. The wind moving across your body causes our second method of heat transfer, convection cooling. I'm sure you've noticed that you get cool much faster when there's a breeze than just standing around waiting for it to cool down. You can feel that convection cooling is a more efficient heat transfer method than radiation. Now, the very best heat transfer method is conduction. Imagine you get out of the jacuzzi and you sit down on a cold metal bench. Your little bottom will start to get cold quite quickly. That's conduction. When you actually touch two surfaces solidly together, the heat will equalize between them much more efficiently than through the air. Now let's get back to talking about my lovely air conditioner. Air conditioners provide two functions. They cool the air, but they also dehumidify the air, which can make you feel a lot more comfortable. Setting aside the humidity factor, an air conditioner cools the air and then blows it around a bit, but it probably doesn't blow it directly on you. So while an air conditioner will eventually lower your temperature, your body has to use radiation cooling to transfer the heat from your body to this newly cooled air. The other problem with air conditioners is that they use a tremendous amount of energy. In order to cool you down, a compressor has to take the heat from the air in the room, transfer it to a liquid refrigerant, and then pump that heat outside. Some units even use radiation, which we just learned is the least efficient heat transfer method, to dissipate the heat outdoors. This inefficiency also results in a lot of noise. Not only does the heat transfer condenser process make a racket, but it's got a fan in it too. And you know, one of my problems is I can't have any noise when I'm recording. Now, let's talk about the simpler solution, a fan. Fans blow air across your skin, cooling you down more quickly with this convection cooling. Sure, it's not as good as sitting on that metal bench for conduction cooling, but it's better than radiation. I suppose the best case scenario would be to turn on the air conditioner, point a fan at yourself, and then wrap yourself in a bunch of ice packs. But let's talk about a more practical solution. As I've mentioned before, my studio is normally in my bedroom, which is quite large, but that lovely ocean breeze outside only has a teeny window in the master bedroom to flow through, which means I get pretty much pretty close to zero natural convection cooling. My air conditioner works, but it's far too noisy to have on during podcasting. And when it gets hot, did I mention how hot it gets under over-the-ear headphones? Well, the best solution had to be a fan to get the benefits of convection cooling, but it couldn't be loud, and it had to efficiently blow air across me. I had an industrial strength fan, but it was super loud. It did cool me down, but it was so loud I couldn't podcast with it on at all. I also got a small Vornado fan, which is really cool. It's a little tiny thing, but it wasn't quite as loud, but it wasn't as powerful either. When desperate, I put it under my desk, pointing at my legs so it was blocked from annoying the microphone. But still, that wasn't ideal. Then Steve took it on as a mission to find me the perfect fan, and he succeeded. Enter the Rowenta VU2660 Turbo Silence Extreme Electronic Table Fan with Remote Control. The, Ro the Rowenta comes in two sizes. There's a four-speed for $67 and a five-speed for $100 from Amazon. Since Steve loves me, or possibly tires of hearing me whine about being too hot, he's spraying the extra money to go the 100 bucks for the five-speed, mostly because it came with that remote, but I'll get to that in a minute. The 5-speed Rowenta has two modes that make all the difference. One is called Turbo Boost. And with that fan, uh, with the fan, I should say, on my dresser 12 feet away from my desk, it gives me a phenomenal cooling breeze across my entire body. Now, I might not be able to record with it on Turbo Boost, but the cooling is undeniably effective. The other mode that is equally impressive is called Silent Night. I have the fan on right now, right next to me, in Silent Night mode while I'm doing this recording. Now, it's, it's really, really is truly silent. Now, while I can't sleep when I'm too hot, Steve can't sleep if there's too much noise. With Silent Night, I get a gentle breeze, and it is nearly inaudible, as you can tell. 
Often I've walked up to it thinking I, it's off when I've actually forgotten and left it turned on. It's a fantastic compromise for us to both be able to sleep. Between Silent Night and Turbo Boost, there are three normal speeds giving you a full spectrum of five speeds. The Rowenta fan stands around 21 inches high and the fan portion itself is about 14 inches in diameter. The remote is awesome. As I mentioned earlier, the fan sits on her dresser 12 feet away, but with the remote, I can change the speed and turn the fan on and off. I do find it comical that I walk or run, you know, nine miles, 18,000 steps a day, but if I have to get up and walk across the room to turn on the fan, that's way too much work for you. For me, I should say. Um, so the remote, I'm actually, let me, uh, let me click it here and you will actually hear it change. Let's go to Turbo Boost for a second. I don't know if you heard that little beep. Now, you probably wouldn't want to listen to me talk with that on because it's pretty noisy, but I'll go back to silent, mo silent Night, and it cools right down. So it's really nice to be able to use that remote from across the room. So when I'm editing, I turn it on to the Turbo Boost, and when I'm recording, I flip it back to Silent Night, and it's really, really nice. Now, I know you guys think I'm making too big of a deal about this fan, but it makes me seriously happy. It's quiet at night so I can be cool and Steve can sleep. And it's powerful enough and quiet enough to keep me cool, even while podcasting. If you've been looking for the perfect fan, check out the Rowenta VU2660 five-speed fan with turbo boost and silent night and that remote control. Now, are you glad you got to learn all that stuff about heat transfer before I told you about my fan? Patrons are the foundational way the expenses get paid for the production of the NoCellacast and Chit Chat Across the Pond. Not only that, they're a way of showing me that you get value from what you learn here. Do you earn a dollar's worth of uh, per week between my reviews, security bits, and chit-chat? Are you at least entertained a dollar's worth? Then consider becoming a patron by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and pledging a weekly dollar amount to show your support for the Podfeed podcasts. I hate scanning almost as much as I hate printing, and I really hate printing. I hate dragging out my Fuji ScanSnap scanner. I hate making room on my desk for all the unscanned papers. And I hate making room on my desk for the ones that shoot out of the scanner. I hate fighting with getting the pages into the scanner correctly. I hate the ScanSnap software. I hate that ScanSnap installs so many apps. I hate how they have to be updated all the time. About the only part I like about scanning is having Hazel triage my scans. I watched David Sparks' awesome two-and-a-half-hour Hazel video field guide where I learned how to have Hazel recognize the Optical Character Recognition, or OCR, find the dates on bills and such, rename the files to have the name of the company and the billing date on them, and finally to whisk them off of my disk and onto the, uh, my Drobo network-attached storage. Setting all that up was super fun. When the rules work properly, it's scanning, it makes scanning about 80% less annoying. But that's still a lot of annoying left over. Luckily, Steve took over the scanning task for me a while back. I have no idea why he volunteered for such a thankless job. It sounds like a running theme here, but maybe he got tired of hearing me whine about it. Maybe he got tired of the giant stack of unscanned papers I'd leave on top of the filing cabinet because I procrastinate so long since I hated it that much. In any case, I'm glad he took it over. Now, before I explain why I'm doing so much whining about scanning, I should probably answer the question so many of you are yelling into your devices, and that's, why are you still getting paper bills, you idiot? Well, this is probably an old habits die hard situation, but Steve and my brains are wired to pay bills when paper shows up at the house. A piece of paper on my desk that is screaming, you owe us money, is much more compelling than an email that I might not want to deal with right away, and I'm in danger of leaving unread. We could also just set up a scheduled time to pay bills, but we're oddly not that structured. Finally, we could set up auto pay, but I think that's a really risky maneuver. I like to see what someone is charging me because I've caught so many companies pulling a fast one over the years that I don't trust anyone. All right, let's get back to the story and the tech that might solve my annoyance problem with scanning. As I mentioned, Steve pays the regular bills and does the scanning into our Drobo for long-term storage. But sometimes I have a single bill that I want to make sure gets filed right away. I've taken photos of bills with my iPhone and then had to wait till the photo moved up to the cloud and then back down to my Mac. And then I export it and then I rename it by hand and then I copy it over to my Drobo and then I delete the original on my Mac. And now it's a photo over there, so it's not got OCR done at all. So that's not exactly a clean process. I realized <laughs> this week that I have a couple of scanning apps on my iPhone, so maybe I should give them a try. 
I mentioned last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, that there are two things I have trouble with in doing honest reviews. And I do give you honest reviews. But one of them is if I've met the developers and I like them, it's harder for me to be super critical. I will still tell you what I don't like, but it'll be a little gentler way in the way I describe those deficiencies. The second thing is that I don't like to pan an app or a device publicly. There are those amongst you who disagree with that approach. And I and and you know you guys say I owe it to you to tell the nocella castaways to stay away from devices and applications that I think are bad. I got to say I was highly influenced in my approach here by the great Tim Verporten of the Mac Review Cast. He believed in the phrase my mother, the Pod Mom, used to always say, "If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all." I repeat all of this because I'm actually going to talk first about an app I don't recommend for this task. Yet I still know and like the developers. I'll follow that short, applic- that short explanation of the app I don't recommend with an app I'm in love with. I started by taking another look at Prismo from Creaseed for iOS. I met the developers from Creaseed at Macworld years ago, and they were lovely people. But I have to say that Prismo doesn't do a great job at scanning easily for me. When you scan, you have a choice of text, image, or a business card. It also has page detection mode, where if you hold the phone above the document, the app tracks the edges of the document really well, with a blue area showing you what is detected. Then you tap the shutter button and you get a few beeps while it tries to find the perfect time to take the shot. Right up to this point, Prismo works really well. The problem is in the image it captures. It disregards that perfect capture that it showed you in the preview that it was going to take. Sometimes it leaves you with an entire photo of the, of the document, the background on which you have the document, but sometimes it gets close to the correct edges, but not close enough. Now, you can drag each of the corners and you see a zoomed up area to make sure you precisely grab those corners, and then you can make that image look great. That's a big waste of my time if it already knew where the edges were. I do like the OCR process, though. It shows a turquoise blue scanning line coming down the page, and it, it's really, really fast at doing the OCR, much faster than Fuji's ScanSnap software for the Mac. And from my testing, the, uh, the, the scanning OCR in Prismo is very, very accurate. But with me having to line all four corners, even with images taken on a stark contrast, it's a waste of my time. It also appears that Prismo is not in compliance with the design standards for the iPhone X form factor. It's got gray bars at the top and bottom, which makes me think maybe this app was great in its time, but hasn't kept up with the competition. It was time to check out another tool. The second app is called Scanner Pro from Readl, or I always want to call it Readle. It's R-E-A-D-D-L-E, but we'll go with Readl. It costs $3.99 for iOS. I've also met the Riedel folks at Macworld, and they're lovely as well. When you point your camera at a document with Scanner Pro, just like with Prismo, you get a blue rectangle showing you the page edges that it has found. If you're farther away than you should be, it will ask you to move closer. When you're close enough and it believes it's found the document correctly, it will automatically take the shot so you don't have to hit the shutter. Unlike with Prismo, Scanner Pro does find the edges correctly and does give you a clean document scan pretty much every time. I should remind you that before you take on this kind of project, make sure you have a good contrasting background for the thing you're trying to scan. After you let it take the shot, you'll see a blue box with a 1 in the bottom right corner of your screen showing you that the camera is ready to take another shot. This is so that it can scan multiple page documents without interruption. Just hold your phone over the next page, let the app take the shot, flip to the next page, hold, flip, hold until you're done. You'll see that the counter is incrementing up to show you how many pages you've successfully scanned into the document. When the entire document is scanned, which might be after one page, you tap on the number that I talked about in the bottom right-hand corner and you'll see your scanned document. At the bottom, you can see the default name with the date and time of scanning embedded in the name. If you didn't finish scanning all of the pages, there's still an add button in the bottom left, and that'll take you back to the scanner tool to add more pages. In the bottom right, you have a a button to take you to an editor with just the essentials you need for scanning documents. In my experience, I haven't needed the included crop tool because it does such a good job of cropping to the right dimensions, but the rotate tool is handy when you're forced to turn the camera to landscape for a scan. There's a pop-up menu to change from color document to black and white, and also color or grayscale photos. Come back to photo scanning a bit later. There's a lightning button, uh, I'm sorry, a lighting button at the top left that lets you change brightness and contrast. 
In the upper right, you can toggle on or off an automatic distortion correction tool. In my experience, letting it correct distortions worked beautifully, so I did never turn it off. After you've tapped Done and Save in the scan interface, Scanner Pro will automatically do the OCR for you. No cool glowing turquoise scan line going down like Prismo, but you can't have everything. The OCR was accurate and clean, and that's what we really care about. At the top right, there are three dots. From there, you can show us text, edit with another Readle product called PDF Expert, or interestingly enough, you can password protect the PDF. Finally, in that menu, you can delete the document. At the bottom middle, there's a share button, and it's got awesome options. Along with the usual email and save to photos options, you can fax a document or open it in another application. You can save to files or save to Dropbox, Google Drive, Evernote, Box, OneDrive, OneNote, and WebDAV. Guess what else you can do? You can add a workflow. Now, this is not a real workflow. I mean, it is a workflow, but it's not a workflow workflow. It's not the official workflow application. But this lets you daisy chain actions like email it and file it in Dropbox. Just for grins and giggles, I created a workflow to scan to a specific folder in Dropbox. Then I made that folder be watched by Hazel so my rules would run to change the name and file it away on my Drobo and then delete it from Dropbox. Work like a champ. Oddly enough, with all these great options of how to save and where to save, saving to iCloud is clumsy. iCloud Drive is not listed as one of the regular services. If you go to, uh, in order to save to iCloud Drive, you have to drill down into files every single time. So that was a little bit, a little bit odd, but a little more on that later. I had high hopes that I could use Scanner Pro to finally scan in all of my analog prints from my photo albums, but that's not going to work. It's not really something a phone could do particularly well by taking a photo because of the reflections of on the photos. Now, maybe if you took all of your, or you printed all your photos as matte, it would work, but I printed everything in glossy and reflections are a nightmare. I tried shining a light on the photos. I tried doing it under a chair so there was little to no light. I tried tilting the photo at an angle to change the angle of reflection. All photos came out with a reflection of me in the photo or with bright areas where light was leaking through and causing more reflections. I'll be doing a post later, possibly. I've got, There is a better option for photo scanning using your phone. All right, so I wanted to bring a few of the settings to your attention in Scanner Pro that I think are useful. You can change the format of the default name I mentioned earlier. There's a section to set up all of your cloud services and to make the process of scanning even more streamlined. For example, you can turn on auto-upload to one of those services. If you want to make sure that your scans don't use up your data plan, you can flip a switch to use auto-upload only on Wi-Fi. You also need to tell it the default file type, whether it's going to be PDF or JPEG. I tested auto-upload, and it does require you to save the scan into Scanner Pro before it executes the upload to your cloud service. I'd like to uh, see them have an option to just never save the file into the phone because I don't really want them stacking up in the app, so I have to delete them afterwards anyway. If you do want to keep your scans on the phone, you can create folders and save directly to them after scanning. I said earlier that if properly configured, your scans will automatically be OCR'd, and you turn that on in settings. They have more than a dozen languages to set as your default for OCR. Choosing a different localization causes Scanner Pro to download that language's recognition library. I tested it out and downloaded Japanese. Then I realized I don't know how to read Japanese, so I wouldn't be able to tell if it worked. Maybe Kaylee can check that for me. Well, most of what I scan, I don't ever want to be in the cloud at all. It could be tax documents, medical records, or just stuff I don't want to share. In Scanner Pro, there's a section called Network that allows you to move scanned documents directly to your Mac, or I think it might work with a PC, I don't see why it wouldn't, over a Wi-Fi connection. The first thing you do is there's a toggle to turn on Wi-Fi access. Once you do that, you'll see the IP address of your iOS device. Now, you simply type that IP address into a web browser. That's why I think it'll work on the PC, too. You'll see a list of the documents that are stored in Scanner Pro. Each of those documents is a separate link, allowing you to select, to view, and then download, or you can right-click on the link and immediately download. It's a bit tedious if you have a lot of documents scanned. Another option uh, to avoid putting the documents in the cloud would be to use AirDrop from within Scanner Pro with the Share menu, assuming AirDrop decides to play nice when you need it. 
Oddly, the toggles for iCloud and iCloud Drive are under this same network section in settings, and it took some research to figure out how iCloud works with Scanner Pro. Under the share sheet, like I said, you won't see iCloud Drive, and you won't find it in Workflow either. You will find your iCloud folders inside files and share that I mentioned earlier, but but to put your scan in there, you have to drill down every single time, like I said. If you turn on the toggle in settings for iCloud Drive, your scans will automatically be uploaded to iCloud Drive in a folder called Scanner by Riedel. You can't change this location either. I recommend having Hazel watch this folder for you and take action on those documents, like renaming them and moving them to where you want to go. But we still have this mysterious iCloud toggle. What does it do that iCloud Drive toggle, the iCloud Drive toggle doesn't do? Turns out they mean iCloud syncing. So if you turn on iCloud, when you scan and hit save in Scanner Pro, your scans live inside Scanner Pro. But with iCloud toggle, uh, toggle I'll get this right yet, with iCloud turtle, I'm going to get it yet, with iCloud toggled on, those same scans will show up in Scanner Pro on all of your devices. So they're stored in the phone and synced across the devices, still all in Scanner Pro. So if that's where you want your documents, that's great. But I'm not sure why you'd want your documents to live inside your scanner app. The advanced settings section has a couple of nice tidbits in it. You can turn on a password lock. And after selecting and confirming the password, you can allow it to use your biometrics to unlock the app. It's very cool if you use it to scan in sensitive documents. You can also turn on the ability to start with the camera enabled as soon as you open the app, which would make it faster to get started. There's also a curious toggle called Radar. Radar will scan your photo library for for documents real time. I happen to have taken photos of a bunch of wine bottles recently for an inventory project of my red wines, and Scanner Pro seemed to like those, but it was also intrigued by the x-ray of my broken toe. Not sure what it thought it was going to do with that. Radar didn't have great value to me, but I don't know, maybe you could use it for something. I've really come to enjoy Scanner Pro from Riedel, and for $3.99 for iPad and iPhone, I think it's a fantastic purchase. You'll see that there are in-app purchases, but that's only to buy the fax packages. Remember I told you that you could you could send it to fax? Well, you need to have some way to fax, and you can just buy it from them. If you only need to fax once in a while, it's really easy to give them a buck or two instead of having to maintain some kind of goofy fax service these days. The FAQ section inside settings is very good for the very few things that weren't self-explanatory. For example, I did have to search there for the explanation of the Wi-Fi and network settings, uh, but the help file explained it really well. I don't know if I'm ever going to drag out my scan snap again now that I've got Riedel's Scanner Pro in my pocket. Heck, I might not even procrastinate on scanning. I was chatting with my good friend Dorothy, also known as Mac Lurker in the chat room in our Google Plus community, about the big Apple announcements, and we got talking about the Apple Watch. Now, she tends to be of the more frugal amongst us, and instead of going for the new shiny, she casts a more critical eye on each device to see if it will actually provide value for her. <laughs> I know, weird, right? Well, anyway, in the context of the Apple Watch, she's been considering it, and her husband Mark, who is also awesome, suggested she look at devices as having value only if you can get rid of something else if you get it. I thought this was an interesting way of weighing the decision on whether to buy a device. Now, I'm not sure I can make a compelling argument in that context for the Apple Watch, unless, of course, you already wear a watch, you'd be getting rid of that. Dorothy has a beautiful daily watch, an even nicer, classy watch, so getting rid of them isn't exactly a selling point. I felt the same way when I got my Apple Watch, and I now gaze back and... I had a couple of my nicer watches with melancholy as they sit alone in a box. I have to say, they look comically small now compared to my Apple Watch. But this did get me to thinking of a way to describe why the Apple Watch is so amazing for me. I'd like to go through my top 10 favorite things about using an Apple Watch. Number one, before I had an Apple Watch, I often missed telephone calls that I really wanted to catch, all because my phone was in my purse. I keep the iPhone's mute switch enabled for a couple of reasons. One is because if we're using my phone to play podcasts in the car and I do any typing on the phone, as a passenger of course, the keyboard clicks drive Steve bonkers. While I do things intentionally sometimes to drive him bonkers, like wearing garishly clashing colors, I try not to do that while he's driving. Now, if my purse wasn't over my shoulder, I would never feel the vibration of the phone, so I'd miss calls. Now the call comes up on my Apple Watch 
If it's Lindsay or Kyle or Steve or Pat, I can tap to answer the call from my watch while I fumble around in my purse looking for my phone to take the call properly. I never miss calls I want to take. With Apple Watch 4 having speakers that are twice as loud, I might just stay on my Apple Watch for more calls, not switch over to the phone. You know, it's already not that bad on the older models, but this will be a big improvement. Number two, I don't think it's actually catching calls that I wanted that's extraordinary about Apple Watch. It's the calls I don't want to take that make the Apple Watch so wonderful. Today, we all get so many robocalls, right? But with Apple Watch, I can glance at my wrist and see that it's no one I know, and I can tap the hang up button on the watch immediately. The whole process takes like two and a half seconds, If I, and that's if I go really slow, and I didn't have to dig my phone out of my purse or pocket, if I had pockets, to find a call that I didn't want to answer. Now, the iPhone oddly does not display a hang-up button when you get a call. I don't know why. you got plenty of room on the watch, but you can't make room for that on the phone. The only way I know how to hang up, which my son Kyle had to teach me, is to hit the power button. I don't know why we don't get that hang-up button until we're on a call with iPhone. So the Apple Watch is actually significantly easier to use to skip a call you don't want to take. All right, next up, numbers three and four. Just like with phone calls, the Apple Watch excels at receiving notifications. I get notifications mostly from Telegram and messages, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful for two reasons. The best part about having notifications on your wrist is not so that you can read and respond to every notification. It's the ones you don't want to respond to immediately that make it have value. Just like the, the, the calls you don't want to take, the notifications you don't need to read. Let's say you and I are having a lovely lunch. If I get a notification of a message on my phone, it's going to light up. I'm going to pick it up. I might even hold it in front of my face, completely interrupting our conversation. And that's even if it's one of the notifications I don't want to read. But if I get a notification on my wrist, I can tilt my arm at a smidge and with a brief glance, see that it's something I can delay till later and look right back at you and staying engaged. For all you know, I just check the time. Of course, you might think I was getting bored, but anyway, you get my, mess, my uh, point, right? Well, the second best feature of notifications on your wrist is being able to respond quickly with voice dictation to the ones you do care about. I exercise a couple hours a day, so I'm often walking the neighborhood dragging poor Tesla around, and I get notifications of things to which I do want to respond. Bart and I have carried on extensive conversations while I'm on a walk, all through dictation from my watch. I'm not sure why, but the voice dictation on Apple Watch is better than it is on the iPhone, and it's better on the iPhone than it is on the Mac. Doesn't make any sense, but there you go. Number five. I never use the Reminders app until I got Apple Watch. I find that I often think of something I want to do while I'm on one of these silly walks. Sometimes it's a reminder to send a note to the SMR podcast guys about how they were wrong on their podcast, but sometimes I realize I forgot to answer someone that's awaiting a response from me or something I got to do when I get home. Just today I was on the elliptical when I remembered that I forgot to respond to Steve Davidson when he asked for an audio recording or an editing application for iOS for a review he's going to do for us next week. I lifted my wrist. I said, hey, yes, lady, remind me to answer Steve Davidson about recording software for the iPad at 1.15 p.m. today. Now, about 80% of the time, S-Lady actually works for me on my walks, with the 20% loss only being uh, because my morning walk and run is along the beach and cellular service near giant bodies of water is problematic. So when I'm away from there, it's actually really, really good. Like I said, the, di the dictation is surprisingly accurate, but with a reminder, even if it just gets the gist of it, that's enough to trigger my memory at the allotted time. Now, I'm also fond of using geolocation for my reminders. Adding when I get home to the end of the reminder will trigger it shortly after my arrival home. By the way, adding when I get home to the end of reminders on the Mac doesn't work. Well, maybe it thinks I'm already home. I don't know. Why is Apple Watch talking to iPhones smarter than my powerful Mac? I know I could create these reminders using S Lady on my iPhone, but it's so much easier to do on the Apple Watch. I don't have to pull my phone out of my spy belt where I'm carrying it while exercising or pulling it out of my purse when I'm in the car. Or, you know, I, I don't have to clean my hands off if I think of something while I'm making lunch. It's faster and easier and, I, and really accurate to use Apple Watch to create reminders. I guess I should mention that you can also choose to get alerts from reminders on Apple Watch. And that's number six. 
By default, Apple Watch mirrors the notifications of your iPhone. So in theory, if you have notifications on the phone, you will get them on your wrist. Now, I say in theory because I don't think I get that many alerts on my Apple Watch for for, uh, reminders. I'm not sure I'm getting all of them. Just on Saturday, I compl- oh, also uh, calendars. It, it doesn't, I don't think I'm getting my calendar notifications on my watch. Because just on Saturday, I completely forgot my recording with BART for programming by stealth. And I don't remember getting a notification on Apple Watch telling me that I had missed it. However, when he pinged me using Telegram that I was seven minutes late, he was very polite with a, I'm ready when you are, not a hey, loser. Why are you seven minutes late? Anyway, when he did that on Telegram, I did get that notification on my wrist. My phone was nowhere near me as we were busy moving out of our bedroom in preparation for the next phase of our bathroom remodel. Now, I've just changed my settings for reminders and calendar in the Apple Watch app to custom, and I've taken all the defaults of custom, so I'm going to watch and see if I start getting my reminders and calendar notifications there. All right, time for number seven. HomeKit isn't the easiest thing to deal with, but when you get things working, it's pretty fun. In a Herculean effort, I created an automation called It's Showtime that tells my LifeX light strip on the mantle to turn on with a blue color. And then it tells me uh, my iDevices switch to turn off, which mutes our landline telephone. And if it's cold, it'll tell me it'll tell my Ecobee thermostat to shut off the central heating. Actually, technically, it tells my Ecobee thermostat to turn it off whether it's hot or cold. But if the heater were going to be running, it would turn it off. When I'm ready for the show... I simply raise my wrist and I say to my watch, hey, S lady, it's showtime. And my lights come on and the phone is muted and the heater stops making noise. When the show is over, a simple raise of my wrist and I tell her showtime is over and my lights go off and the phone comes back on and I can be warm again. I know I could do it with my iPad or iPhone, but my watch is right there on my wrist. Some devices don't respond terribly quickly, so I do have to resort to my phone and that really irritates me. My August smart lock has to go through Bluetooth to talk to its dedicated Wi-Fi hub and then over to Wi-Fi to talk to the internet. That double jump does take a while, especially if you throw some S-Lady into the mix. I sometimes have to pull out my phone, find the August app, and tap on the door lock unlock button, which just uses Bluetooth directly to the lock. Now, most of the time, the automation that says just to unlock when I get close works, but when I do have to do it manually, it's kind of annoying. So I do have to use my phone, and that's much faster than all that S-Lady Bluetooth Wi-Fi chatter. So in that case, the Apple Watch doesn't always solve the problem. All right, number seven. You know I'm a fanatic about working out. I've mentioned it about 12 times in this podcast alone, but one thing I don't find super useful is the Apple Watch notifications of my friends' exercise habits. I'm not saying I don't enjoy them. They're just not useful. I do love seeing how much my friend Pat works out now. I find it entertaining to see Bart finish a workout at two in the morning his time. I love seeing Steve finish a workout when it's way after the exercise. And I know he forgot to stop the workout because it's really fun to tease him when he does that. I still wish the Apple Watch had uh, the notifications offered more smack talk in their messaging. I know I could hit the microphone button and dictate something snotty like the message I just sent to Dr. Gary today. Your longest move street yet. How long was it? Three days? (laughs) I'm bad, aren't I? Anyway, they have built-in lines, uh, but they don't have real snotty ones. They say things like, way to go, and I'm proud of you. I did see one that said yawn, so they're trying at least. Number eight. I have one thing that I have to do every day that has to be done for at least 12 minutes. I put the timer app as a complication on my watch face with it set to open at the custom option with 12 minutes selected. I tap the complication once, hit start, and I'm done. I know I could use S-Lady to do that, but since I have these complications, it's super easy and quick to just go tap, tap, and it works 100% of the time. Now, I know people are annoyed that S-Lady is so limited that you can only keep track of one timer. But for me, I must have that one timer to be there when I need it and to act on my request quickly. And the Apple Watch makes it much easier than using a phone or even a kitchen timer. Number nine, I've saved the best for last. It's a song you've heard me sing many times. And that's the fact that Apple Watch helps me stay fit. A couple of years before I retired, I lost 10 pounds. It was the exact same 10 pounds I'd lost pretty much every year for the last 30 years. I was already exercising every day, but I did something different. I started wearing a Fitbit to count my steps and started dragging people on a mile or two long walks around our work campus when they wanted some of my time. At the time, my goal was 10,000 steps, 
and I started meeting that goal. When Apple Watch came out, though, I learned even more with the calorie and step counting in the workout app. I learned which exercises would help me meet my goals of calorie burn that would match how much I wanted to eat and drink each day. I had counted calories so many times before, and it always worked to take the weight off, but I didn't have the other side of the equation, so the weight didn't stay off. I look down at my wrist in the early afternoon now to find out how far of a walk Tesla will be dragged on that day. If I ran in the morning, I know I can safely only go eh, like a mile and a half to burn, uh, to burn to get to my 660 calorie goal. If I did the elliptical at the gym, though, which burns fewer calories, she's going for the full three mile walk to the park and back. Or maybe to my friend Ron's house where the path has great hills. Like so many of you out there, I've learned that if I inefficiently carry things up and down stairs, I burn more calories. Park farther away, more calories. Getting instantaneous feedback with actionable information right on my wrist has allowed me to keep those 10 pounds off for the last seven years. All right, bottom line, Apple Watch doesn't make you get rid of anything except your pretty watch, but it does make you need to pull out your phone far less often, it allows you to be less rude when checking messages, and it helps you become more healthy if you choose to act on the information it gives you. Now all we need is it to tell us our cholesterol, our blood sugar, our blood pressure, Oh, and by the way, no, I couldn't think of a 10th reason. Okay, so this is funny. You might know that we have a live audience, and you might know that Steve is amongst that live audience. After I just finished doing that recording, Steve said, Hey, Allison, you said seven twice, so you actually did come up with 10 reasons to uh, to use the Apple Watch. Okay, that's funny right there. I don't care who you are. Made me laugh, so that's uh, that's all we're really looking for, right? Well, in any case, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send your dumb questions, comments, suggestions, your reviews. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can check me out at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. We talked about becoming a Patreon or a patron through Patreon. That's uh, You can get to that by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon. If you want to join our Facebook group, podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to join Google Plus? Podfeet.com slash Google Plus. Want to join in the uh, live chat? Podfeet.com slash chat. If you want to catch out those uh, Amazon affiliate links, Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to Podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.